Well, Kathy and I have a friend of almost 40 years who is sometimes known for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Once, she and her five other sisters were seated around the dinner table along with her father, who is a Presbyterian pastor, her mother, and the visiting evangelist who was doing a week-long revival at her father's church. One sister, in an attempt to make dinner conversation, said to the evangelist, it must be difficult for you to travel around doing all these revivals. You must really miss your wife. The evangelist affirmed, yes, it's very difficult to be away from her. Our friend, just a teenager at the time, feeling the need to contribute something to the conversation, said, well, you know what they say, abstinence makes the heart grow fonder. (laughs) Every fork stopped midair. Silence descended around the table, and everyone looked down at their plate as if something mesmerizing was happening there. Our friend immediately rehearsed in her mind what it is she had said, and when she realized it, she was blonde and she flushed bright red. And after what seemed like an interminable silence, her mother, who was very proper, said, I think she meant absence. The word abstinence or abstain still causes quite a stir, but for a different reason now, in a culture of no restraint in a culture of overindulgence, in a culture where people are encouraged to do what they feel like doing and be who they want to be without restraint, abstinence continues to be an embarrassment. More than that, it's seen to be oppressive. Abstinence is an anathema, which is not surprising because it is what God requires of us. So listen, you and I are greatly loved by our Heavenly Father. Heaven is our true home and not this earth. And so for the sake of our souls, your soul and my soul, we can abstain and we must abstain from all those things that would work to kill our souls. And that's what I want us to talk about as we return this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take those out now. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place in 1 Peter chapter 2, let's stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, this is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless now, we pray, as you promised to do, the reading and the hearing of your word. Strengthen us when your spirit joins your word to be the people that you have called us to be, 
to see Christ clearly for who he is. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I mentioned, if you were here last week, these verses that we've read this morning begin the second section of this letter of 1 Peter. And in the section that's coming up, Peter is going to impress upon us the need for us to live out what we say we believe, even when that is going to be difficult. And that's one of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith, is it not? One of the most distinctive marks of a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is both the desire and the ability to to bridge that great divide that separates what we say we believe, what we profess to believe when we're gathered here on Sunday morning, and then how we actually live our lives. Last week, we looked at the foundation that absolutely has to be in place in order for you and for me to to cross over that bridge from belief to action before you and I will ever be able or willing or even joyful in our obedience, especially when that obedience is difficult, we must know the love that God has for us, His beloved, through His beloved Son. The clear implication of the protective words that Peter writes here in verse 11 about abstaining from what wages war against our soul is that God loves our souls. That non-physical, spiritual part of us, that part that will last forever, the part of us that is more real than the skin that we see when we look down at our hands this morning, it's going to be gone. The Apostle Paul writes, Though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The souls, our soul, will live on and be housed in a new body. And everyone here who's over 60 said, Amen. Amen. God loves our souls. He wants them cared for. So then, why could not, why could not everything that God commands be an expression of that soul love? Why would his commands and his instructions not provide protection for our very souls against that which would weaken them, discourage them, damage them, even destroy them? You and I, we have got to understand That everything that God commands, those are just his next steps of the love that he's already lavished on us through Jesus Christ. And so we come to this word, abstain, which simply means to avoid contact with something or use of something, to keep away from it, to refrain from it. Now, this command could make our legalism radar go up, right? 
It could bring to mind that Southern Baptist mantra that maybe some of us grew up hearing. Don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't hang out with those who do. You heard it. I lived it. This command to abstain could make you and me fear this world. It could cause us to adopt a Platonic or an Aristotelian view of the world. These great philosophers believed that physical matter was evil. Once again, I grew up with this common phrase, and it informed the way we looked at everything in the world, and the phrase was this, well, it doesn't matter. It's all going to burn up anyway. The world was seen as evil, which led us to believe that God viewed the world in the same way, which led us to believe then the view of God that the world likes to promote, that he's angry, he's a cosmic killjoy, that he's demanding, that he's impossible to please, and that his goal in existing is to rob you and me of any pleasure in this world. I have a great passion for preaching that we will never view God or the Christian life in this way. It is antithetical to who God is and who and how he calls us to be in this world, and we must have none of it. So in order to accomplish that purpose, in order to embrace the word, embrace the word, abstain, instead of reject it, we're going to look at one theological truth about God, which I pray then is going to lead to a very practical application for how to live in this world and protect our souls. And the theological truth is this. God is simple. That's it. God is simple. That's how theologians like Thomas Aquinas, long before the Reformation, long before the Westminster Confession picked it up in its own unique language. That's how they said, God is simple. Conversely, God has created us, you and me, to be complex beings. Now, we would think that it should be the other way around, that we are simple and that God is complex because he is infinite and because he is eternal. But when theologians say that God is simple, they don't mean it in the sense that he somehow doesn't get it. Or God somehow doesn't understand it in a bless his heart sort of way. Or that God is somehow a stripped down model of something more advanced. No, to say that God is simple simply means that God is not made up of many parts. God is a simple one. God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. That's it. I just am God. God is always God. I am is always I am, period. You might ask, but wait a minute. Don't we talk about the attributes of God? Plural. His grace, his mercy, his compassion, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. Yes, we do. But we only talk about his attributes because you and I are finite people, finite in our understanding. And those are the words we have to use in order that we might understand who God is. Each one of those attributes go together to make one God. And listen, 
Not one of them can ever be missing from God at any time or he wouldn't be God. For instance, if God were not loving even for one millisecond, he would cease to be God. He could never not be gracious for even one millisecond or he would cease to be God. His wrath never cancels. His love and His justice never cancels His mercy. And that's why God is God. He's the only being that can be these things perfectly and without contradiction all the time because all these define Godness. But they do not compose Him. They don't make Him up. They comprise Him. All those things go together to make one God. Now, I know that sounds complex. But actually, it's simple. We, you and I, on the other hand, we are complex people. God has created us with parts we're made up of body and spirit. And you and I are complex and we're complicated in that even though you and I are created in the image of God, we sin. And that complicates us. That complicates our lives. Would you agree that sin complicates your life? Complicates how we relate to everything and everyone in the world. And so we have to understand then, in all that God does for you and for me, through Jesus Christ, in the gospel, and in his commands, it's to lead us from a life of complexity and complication to a life of simplicity. And that's why we have to grapple with this word abstain and what it means for us in this world. Let's go back to Genesis 3 for just a minute. These are the words that God spoke to Adam after he sinned. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. This will become Adam's new reality. He had never seen a thorn before. He had never seen a thistle before, but he's going to. We know a thorn, but you know what a thistle is? A thistle has a beautiful flower in it, but that flower is surrounded by prickly, sharp spikes. Now, biologists would tell you that the thistle evolved in that way to protect itself from the herbivores that would come and eat it. Not so. God created them as part of the curse. And they, along with the thorns, will be there with and among and beside the good food that will continue to feed Adam and Eve and the beautiful flowers that they will continue to enjoy. And so this means, listen, that creation is not as dark as it could be. Not as dark as probably it should be as a result of such a great rebellion against such a good and giving God. In any case, 
Thorns and thistles are now part of the world. They prick, they draw blood, they cause pain. And they exist in creation right alongside that which is beautiful. That will always be reality in our world. And all that to say, as you and I live out our faith in this world, as you and I seek to bridge that bill, build that bridge between belief and action, we've got to navigate this reality. In verse 11, Peter talks about passions. And the first definition of that word in a good lexicon is this, a great desire for something, longing, craving, clearly, passion defined in this way is not always a bad thing because you and I should be passionate for Christ, should we not? And we should be passionate about the things of God. The second definition of passion is this, a desire for something forbidden or simply an inordinate craving lust. And so Peter writes in verse 11, abstain from the passions which war against your soul. Keep the passions, the passions for the beautiful things that God has created. Enjoy the flowers that he's left among the thorns and the thistles. Just watch out for them. Guard your soul along the way. Peter was with Jesus when Jesus went out in that boat and then turned to teach the multitude of people who had gathered along the shore to listen to him. He taught them the parable of the sower. And Jesus said, Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is complex life for complicated people. Cares, deceitfulness, wrongly sought riches. The world is full of these thorns. And we don't have time to exegete this parable this morning. I only wanted to read the words out loud so that you could hear that thorns and thistles threaten your soul when you fixate on them. And don't look for the beauty of Christ and the glory of Christ in the midst of them. Let me just pick some low-hanging fruit as an example. Money. Money is absolutely neutral. It's the love of money. And it's the love of the things and the comforts and the power and the position and the security that money can provide. That's what is evil. And that's what wars against our souls. And that's just one example of the many passions of the flesh the inordinate cravings for things that provide satisfaction that we are supposed to find only in Christ, where we seek in them the self-promotion as if there can be a greater promotion 
that you and I have received than being adopted as the sons and daughters of the living God. Does it get any better than that? Does it? No. And so on and on it goes. And you know all about these things. We've got to abstain from the things that make our lives complicated and complex when they are not placed in the hand of Christ for Him to redeem for us. Here, Lord, take away the thorns, make this passion beautiful for you and for your glory. And you know what? Christ can do that. And here's how I know. I think of the most famous thorn in all of human history. And those are the thorns that pressed into the brow of our Savior. The thorns that could have made him say, stop, enough. But Christ redeemed those thorns. Those thorns enhanced the beauty of the one who wore them. Those thorns made his love more prominent than it would, than it would ever have appeared to us if he had not worn them. The beauty was within the thorn. A thornless love would not have been compelling. A love that costs nothing has so little meaning. But Christ's love cost him. The perfect, eternal Son of God, suffering separation from the Father, with whom he had only ever for all eternity been in the closest loving union. It cost him his very life. Jesus knows all about the thorns. He knows about your thorns and mine. The thorns that wage war against our souls. But he knows this too. And this is good news. He knows that his father and our father is the master gardener. He says so in John 15. And what a perfect circle is formed here. The thorns and the thistles of the curse, redeemed through the pruning of the perfect gardener God. When we seek Him through the Word, in our private devotions, and our corporate worship, when we seek Him through prayer, when we seek Him through this table, these means of grace show us the beauty of Christ. And the bitterness of the lesser thorns that threaten our souls. Christ is God's simple answer to the complex, complicated lives of people like you and me. The simple God makes it simple for us in the gospel. I want to conclude with these words from Sinclair Ferguson who in my opinion is one of the greatest preachers of our time. And I would say to you, listen to him whenever you can. He says this, Our greatest need is that the gospel should simplify us, that the gospel should uncomplicate us. And when we come to have fellowship with this God, who simply is, who he is all the time, then I think one of the effects of that 
is that the better we come to know him, the simpler our lives become because we are taken up with the knowledge of him. And we still live in this very complicated world, but I think we become much more like Paul as he writes in Philippians 3, but one thing I do. And sometimes I like to think that Timothy is there when Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians, saying, come on, Paul, you're never doing only one thing. You're doing a thousand things all the time. And I think of Paul saying, no, Timothy, I'm not doing a thousand different things. I'm doing one thing in a thousand different ways. One thing in a thousand different ways. Laser, focused, love of Christ. You and I are complicated. And we're complex. God gives us the gospel not to complicate our lives as we so wrongly believe, but to simplify them. The things of the world allure us for our own gain and our own glory, but the gospel says you don't need that. You've got Christ. And so God says, abstain. This is God's sole love for us. God knows. He knows. And the more we abstain so that we can focus on Christ, the more blessedly simple our lives will be, and the more like Christ our Father Gardener will make us to be. Is that good news? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes laser-focused on Christ, His love for us, and our love for Him. And we do pray in the words of the song that seeing Christ, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.